0: Paul. Rich. I want to welcome you to Track Changes.
1: The official podcast of Postlight, a product design studio in New York City. Yes. So today in the studio, we have two pretty amazing people. And since there were two of them, and they had a lot to say, we're going to do a two-part episode. Great. So it's Jessica Helfand and Michael Baruch. Pretty cool. She teaches at Yale. Mm-hmm. He also teaches a little at Yale, but is, is a, a senior partner at pentagram yes ever heard of pentagram oh yeah pretty good shop you care about design you've heard of pentagram yeah you do they just it's it's everyone has an opinion and uh most people have a kind of love for pentagram yep so let's get into it with them awesome we've had some very accomplished people in here yeah this is raising the bar for us a little bit honestly you and i need it like we literally need to leave here and go to a tailor (laughs)
0: <laughs> because, immediately afterwards because what
1: you're hearing is the laughter yeah. of uh of michael barut and jessica healthman who work together on a ton of different things let me give real real bios for these people let me not half-ass it for once okay i, I don't think you have the option no this these are these are like these people know stuff like i'm just sort of picking there's a, there's like a vibe in the room of just raw design knowledge that i i don't think i've ever felt before no it's a vibe before <laughs> we allow them to speak i'll tell you that jessica helfand is a founding editor of design observer an award-winning graphic designer and writer a former contributing editor and columnist for print Eye and communication arts magazine member of alliance graphique international or internationally okay mm-hmm. and a recent laureate of the art director's hall of fame which i'm guess where where jessica let's let's hi
2: Hi, Where, <laughs> is that here in New York City? It
1: is. I'm sorry, I was sort of hoping it was in Cooperstown, like right by the, the baseball <laughs> hall. of here. I think that if they,
2: they saw the my, my lack of prowess in terms of all sports, they would rescind whatever offer was coming my way. I just, it could, they could be, all
1: be together. So you are uh, very, very closely associated with Yale University. I am. And what is your role there?
2: Often called a lifer, as in a person who never leaves. Well, I was uh, educated there as an undergraduate and later went back for my MFA. I've been on the faculty in the School of Art since the mid-90s. Michael and I are both senior critics in the School of Art and beginning Just this fall, just this summer, actually, we've joined the faculty of the School of Management as faculty in design.
1: So I want to get into that. And also, you have uh, quite recently, May, a book came out, Design Design. The Invention of
2: Desire. That's right.
1: Also from Yale University Press. You're very on brand.
2: I'm very on brand. It's also called It's in boring. the contract. Yeah.
1: <laughs> like, I mean, if you told me your jacket was by Yale, no, I'd be like, No, oh. it's
2: kind of embarrassing. I, I'm, I've never been to a football game, which is the <laughs> my father will never let me forget.
1: That's I mean, it might be time. You, my,
2: my loyalties might seem quite, you know, it's devoted. Not,
1: it's something. not too late. That's true. <laughs> so also, immediately to your left is Michael Barut. So Michael Barut studied graphic design at the University of Cincinnati and has been a partner in the New York office of Pentagram since 1990. Now, okay, design at Yale is a, is a big deal, and Pentagram is a big deal. There like if, if a bomb hit
0: right now, it everything would be a, going forward will be slightly less attractive.
1: There'd be a lot. Yeah, <laughs> logos get like 10 percent crappier. Yeah. And the Kerning
0: starts to break. Yeah, everything goes right Everything's a little out of whack. Yeah.
1: yeah, like that's, there is a significantly bad effect. It's so, like, woo, Exxon, what happened to you? <laughs> so, and Michael's <laughs> also, we should also point out as senior a critic in graphic design at the Yale School of Art. And since we are Promoting these people for this very moment, let's also point out that he has a book from HarperCollins, um, How to Use Graphic Design to Sell Things, Explain Things, Make Things Look Better, Make People Laugh, Make People Cry, and Every Once in a While Change the World. How, how does that look on Amazon when they have that title?
3: <laughs> um, it sort of um, uh, negates... Uh, the purpose of the rest of the page actually because everything you need to know is in that little picture, sort of. So it looks okay. Okay, I just like <laughs> it. Just sort of feels like that would really overwhelm the pa- like that. That title just would. It's not a tweetable book title. No, which is and I, I, I realized that much, much, much later. Actually, it's too I, late. I have to say the title I, I I sell a lot for our
0: agency. I mean, mm-hmm. I, it sounds cold when you boil it down to selling, but I sell through design a lot. And and I have to say this: I'm going to read this book and it effectively baked the description into the title.
3: Yeah, it's a, it's what it says on the can yeah. is what's inside. I mean, who in God's yeah. name doesn't need that right yeah. now? <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. Actually, can you just tell them, what is Pentagram? Oh, so um, now Pentagram's a, uh, it's, you know, it's like a design company based on an unusual sort of model. The model is that it is a uh, partnership between among creative people. Right now there are 21 partners in five offices, Mm -hmm. and each one of the partners runs a small-ish design group within the overall structure. So it's been around since 1972, a long time. All of those partners are creative people. We all manage everything by consensus. There's no managing director. There's no business person. It's just sort of a bunch of art school graduates who sort of banded together partly for fun and partly for mutual protection. You know, it's like a gang, I guess, gang ethos.
1: The thing I'm used. always fascinated by Pentagram is, is actually kind of what it doesn't do. Yeah. Like it, there's so many design focused places in, in particularly in New York City where the, the focus slowly shifts away from design towards more agency style. Yeah. Like there's two ways to think about branding. There's like we're going to create a true identity. And then there's also sort of all this other stuff and service oriented work. And, yeah. and, and it seems like Pentagram, I'm guessing very consciously... Has decided to stick with a few things.
3: Yeah, I mean, we all—all all the partners—we're all designers, and we all like making stuff. If you're a designer, you're, you know, making it is part of it. But you also have to uh, get clients. You have to—you uh, to figure out what they need. Once you design the thing, you have to figure out a way to persuade them that the thing you design satisfies that need. Then you have to help them get it out into the world. So, the making part, which is in the middle, is the fun part. But you have to take pleasure in the other parts too. But the making part is the thing that we're all really into. And I think what I've seen happen a lot of times with design businesses is that, Quite rightly, a designer will go into a partnership with a business person, or sometimes Mm -hmm. there's a three-legged stool. There's the person who's like the creative designer. There's the operations person that makes sure the rent is paid and the lease on the Xerox machine is up to date and everyone is registered for health insurance. Then there's an outside person who sells and is the public face of the place. And usually the more successful those latter two people are, the bigger the place gets. The bigger the place gets, the more kind of – vaguely tortured the creative person is because <laughs> that person then is like spending all their time doing what they don't want to do, which is administering uh, a large firm with a lot of activity. And so a lot of times the creative person leaves, then the two remaining people decide they're never going to make that mistake again. They're just going to hire more malleable people who are willing to take orders and uh, commoditize sort of the design slash creative part of the operation, mm-hmm. which I think I think that's a very sensible business choice, sure. but the Pentagram model is successfully inoculated themselves against that by having it be over its entire 40-plus year history run entirely by creative people. So a lot of times our our financial model is real simple, and I thought that was based on some sort of commitment to rigor and clarity. Now I realize it's because almost the entire partnership to a person – Stop taking math classes after eighth or ninth grade. This is a very (laughs) simple business. (laughs) Exactly, yeah, because we can do division, but we don't really. We do multiplication, division, and beyond that, it's sort of complicated. It's what designers can understand. Yeah, exactly. Is it safe to say you're not wired to growth? No, we're not. not? We're not. In fact, um, the way we grow traditionally is having a new partner join the firm, and then take the firm in a slightly different direction and we do. I'm, you know, I'm old. I'm 58 years old, so I'm antediluvian. I have younger partners who uh, who also might give a completely different description of the firm and who certainly have different ideas about the kinds of activities mm-hmm. they want to do as designers. But there's no pressure on me personally to you know, to, I mean, I have to pay my share of the overhead, ideally. And it's nice to get paid for your work and everything. But I don't, there's because we're not owned by anyone. We don't have to show year after year growth. It's almost like a co-op. Yeah, it is. It is. It is. It's is. It's like, it's like combination. I thought you were going to say it's almost
2: like a cult. It is. Like, what's a cult? Co- a cult. Oh, yeah, a <laughs> yeah, covey. Yeah.
1: I Jessica, what's your relationship been with, with Agency World over your I career? I have None. I, I,
2: okay. I, I'm kind of a, I'm kind of a cousin to Pentagram because Michael's been very kind to me, and so when I'm in the city, <laughs> there's usually some partner that's not there, and I sit at their desk. So I'm like the the you know in the Goldilocks and the Three Bears. That's that's my relationship. <laughs> I'm 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 Goldilocks to Pentagram. Yeah. So
0: if someone approached you and say, you know, I love I love your book, I would love your help. Would you say no?
2: I would say yes. I have two children in college. Oh, so you <laughs> do, So, yes, do, absolutely. Do, I'm,
0: I'm not saying about that. You do mercenary- uh, Yeah, so I
2: had efforts. a studio for many years. Freelance. Okay. Freelance.
0: Yeah. And mercenary is a little strong. It sounds a little more badass, though. I mean-
1: okay. Yeah, badass okay. on
2: one end, sort of calculating on the other. <laughs> um, I had a studio for many years. Okay. And we had four or five people working for us, and um, my partner, my husband, our partner, and design observer, Bill Drentel died in 2013, I sold the house, I shut down the studio a year later, and uh, I've been running Design Observer primarily since then and doing a little bit of consulting on the side. Got it. And I think it's given me great clarity about the kinds of projects I want to do hmm. uh, and the kinds of people I want to work with. And and one thing that I have started to do that is it's turning out to be really a, a compelling piece of my new worldview is um, I've always wanted to have a more international life. I, I grew up in Paris, and I think I got into design early by th- thinking unrealistically perhaps at the time that that design could be a kind of international language and so uh, you know a few years ago I joined AGI this international design uh, sort of consortium fellowship that Michael's also part of and it started to introduce me to some people in other parts of the world and I started teaching internationally and and I just I, I don't know I think that with a big studio I was not able to entertain those kinds of projects so I wouldn't say that they're single-handedly helping me wall up the uh, tuition bills of of university for my two children, but it's. But I think I have more clarity now that I have less overhead and, and less of a responsibility for others.
3: Well, I was going to say I think that Jessica and I have very different kind of. On the surface, it looks like we have very different um, models of working. We both call ourselves designers, but in we we work in different ways. But w- our commonalities are that. Um, Because of the way that Pentagram is set up, I actually have a lot of freedom to work on a blog with Jessica, to teach up at Yale, to write stuff, Mm -hmm. as well as taking on big kind of commercial assignments, you know, logos for big companies and stuff like that. I try to avoid taking on work that just pays a lot of money, and I'm kind of... Tried for years pretty successfully to avoid just saying yes to something just because I think there's a big check involved. My team and my share of the overhead of Pentagram is uh, economical enough that I don't need that much to kind of keep it going. And so I'm able to take on a lot of kind of non commercial work, work that's cultural and work that could be relatively low paying. And I think that you know, the kind of practice that Jessica has and had even when you had a handful of people working for you was always much more about nonprofit institutions, cultural work, stuff like that. Yet, I think you and Bill, while you're running that studio, also never hesitated to engage with a big, challenging problem if it came up just because you found the size and the scale challenging and mm-hmm. interesting, which is, I think is what compels me about it. Yeah. There's, I don't think there's anything that fun in, you know, just a big budget. I think if you're getting paid a lot of money and you're working with horrible people who drive you crazy, it's sometimes that that money like is never enough, you know. Whereas mm-hmm. if the people are interesting and the cause is worthy and you're you're learning something about it as you're doing the work you know, it just is its own reward right. to a certain degree. That's very idealistic, so you can kind of be cynical It now. seems to
1: be, I mean, you both seem, <laughs> you seem very motivated by joy, right? Like, there seems to be this, like, I'm going to go to the world, and,
3: and you're going to do... Th- I'm going to try new pizza toppings. I was thinking about my what, what my <laughs> adventure would be. I don't want to go around the world, but I will try that <laughs> pineapple topping, I guess. It sounds crazy. But that's, that's a
0: tension, I, I think. You know, we, we just started a studio... Less than a year ago. And we have this conversation almost every two months of, okay, so we've got the client work and we're starting to put some money in the bank. Are we ready yet to carve out the sandbox so that we can play and do some stuff that is a little more out there that no client would ever give us, but is going to be very enriching and and incredibly
1: um,
2: satisfying
0: for us we run that test what every sixty days. No, I think
1: that conversation. We were just told the answer is yes, so it's done. <laughs> yeah. So let's do it. uh, yeah. Well, this is really tricky, right? Because I think what there's four practitioners around the table and four people who work in a very meta way who have to build things and nurture people as well, and it's that's a constant tension. Every and for me, and I, I this I know this is true for Rich, and it sounds like it might be true for you guys too. Like making the thing is the home base. Like if I can't do that, I, yeah, yeah. And I'm currently distant from it. It means that days are a little harder than they need to be because I don't have that nourishment because I'm just kind of like, wow. yeah. I'm not taking, it's a, it's a one way that you don't take care of yourself is not making things. And we're not making many things. We're building a company so that we can make bigger and more dynamic things we're than trying normally. Trying to
0: sprint ahead so that there is enough daylight to... Mm-hmm put some resources aside and say, hey, let's go do something a little nutty. Right. We try to rational. at least I try to rationalize it as this is great marketing when we put this out. We get to showcase to the world. Yeah,
1: you have a need to sort of justify it in like a nice I do. capitalist context. Yeah. I just think it's like... <laughs> I do. <laughs> one it's signal true. goes out, people come in. I mean, you guys, <laughs> no. I, I, we're doing this podcast. You guys um, podcast very frequently as well with design observer and you have a broad audience with design observer and it feels like that that signal seems like it must be nourishing too right like i mean yeah. what does the feedback feel like as it comes in
2: well i think we have different i don't know how michael would answer this but i think the feedback for the podcast has been different than for the blog obviously the blog was a multiplicity of voices over 13 years mm-hmm. we've been doing the podcast almost just about 2 years i think we've done 40 episodes uh, and I think we're really starting to hit our stride. It's also it's just the two of us. We're very interested in what the intersection is with our purview as designers with a larger world, which is very much consistent with the original mission of Design Observer. Mm-hmm. But because it's only two of our voices, it's funneled through a, a smaller prism. A prism, nonetheless, because we're different people and we have different perspectives on things. But it's, uh, it's a lively, engaging way to look at design's value outside the studio Uh, Whereas I think that the writing that we have done together and separately on Design Observer is a different kind of investigation into a single thing that collectively over time becomes many things. But I think that podcast medium is a very exciting one because you can be timely and we can talk about things that are in the world and the world is a very visual place. So increasingly we're finding ourselves talking about politics and sports and global tensions and uh, journalism and to the extent that the point of entry for the public is a visual one that's a design story mm-hmm. and so week after week i think we're finding no shortage of material and we're just really kind of enjoying that
1: i feel we're in some ways uh, the mirror image i mean we did one show which was all about the the web platforms that the presidential candidates yeah, 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 yeah. sort of like we poked around the under the hood on all our sites and uh, and what that could tell you about sort of the ethos and and, and it, oh
3: wow yeah yeah great right
1: it's very playful right and you can I think that the thing that's lovely about that right is that you're not you're not saying that you have this like one straight up epistemological system that's going to address everything and I, I feel that that's just sort of part of adulthood is just acknowledging that the thing that you love more than anything else does not have all the answers in the world but you're still going to continue to love it as much you can't quite help yourself right. And that's us with technology and yeah. with sort of building and product. And it's it just like it kind of radiates off of you, um, both of you, which is really kind of – it's nice to see. I can't – I don't know how to communicate that in, in auditory form. But, 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 just... I
3: th- but I think you all – I mean I think you guys and, and anyone interesting you meet, they both have a kind of expertise but they also have a curiosity. And if you meet someone who's just an expert and doesn't appear to be exhibiting any mm-hmm. curiosity, who just is so eager to just kind of keep – completing the puzzle out to the last piece and then move on to the next one without kind of looking outside the borders, those people are dull and they end up kind of not being that fun to listen to. And then if you listen to people who are only curious, they're sort of like... You know, they don't have a framework to kind of interpret what they're curious about. And I always find that intersection between someone who has real expertise in a subject matter, yet is really fascinated by things that are outside that subject. Really, those people are always inevitably really interesting.
1: I think what's interesting is that we're all also drawn to make media now. These platforms are here for us to start to communicate some of that outward in a way that it didn't used to be. Mm-hmm. And you're a teacher, too. I'm, I'm, I'm looking at Jessica. But, like, this has been sort of part of what you've been doing forever. I mean, this is your job.
2: Yeah. And, I mean, I think the classic way you teach is you show up and you critique work. And in the past five or ten years, I've really started to originate different, uh, reluctant to call them pedagogic models, but in a sense they are. Like, how can you, in a world that's increasingly visual, how can you reach people who don't think of themselves as visual but are, mm-hmm. and get them to open their minds in a different way. So I taught a course for several years um, after my book on scrapbooks came out. Mm-hmm. It was called Studies in Visual Biography that met once a week in the studio and once a week in one of the collections at Yale. And it got these kids away from Facebook and into like the bowels of the research capabilities of a library to research people's lives other than their own. And if you're dealing with someone who's 18 years old the ability to show them that something matters that's not in that myopic closed ecosystem of them and their friends is a tremendous paradigm shift. And then now I teach a course on the color blue that's even more that way.
1: Well, that was going to be my next question. Yeah. I'm fascinated by this class. So what, what happens when they come in on the, the so first day? So the,
2: the thing I have to say to your listeners, um, people assume that I'm just teaching designers, but in fact, um, nothing could be further from the truth. So this is a freshman seminar mm-hmm. at Yale. They, they enter on a lottery. There's, I think, 40 of them. And they rank what they want to do. And they get in or they don't get in. And so they're on lots of different topics. And many schools are doing this now. There, there's actually great seminars at Pomona. I know the California schools are doing them. And so the dean asked me to come up with an idea for a class that could be anything to anybody. And the example he gave me was water. Like you could teach a course on water and it could be about sustainability, it could be about the environment, it could be about bookbinding and the the warp of the paper. And I immediately knew I wanted to do a course on blue. So I get 18 students.
1: Wait, wait. Could you unpack the immediately there? Immediately.
2: Okay. I, what what I'm I'm really interested in the fact that you think you know what it is and you have no idea what it is. It, okay. It's everything and it's yeah. nothing. It's, We look at uh, blue collar and blue blood. We look at the Tiffany's box, and the Goloise package. I bring in a singer-songwriter to teach them how to find the blue note, which is the note between the major and the minor scale, which we do on blue harmonicas. <laughs> we go to the Art Gallery, and we look at Edward Hopper's Skies for hours on end. We go to the Natural History Museum, and we have an amazing ornithologist who talks to the students about why birds have blue feathers. So the point is, is that at the end of 28 sessions, it doesn't matter whether you're a designer or you're a choreographer or you're a chemist. What matters is that you realize that opening your mind to a different way of seeing the world is what's going to get you to the next thing. And the kids that make the best work are not the ones who think they're artists. They're the ones who are linguists. They're the ones who are poets. I mean, partly it's because they're 18 and they don't—they've just not been on the planet long enough to have any bad habits when mm-hmm. it comes to like their studio practice. Mm-hmm. And part of it is just that they're—they're they're like puppies. They're just like so energetic and smart and filled with optimism and relentless determination. And to Michael's point, curiosity to beat the band. And so. It is just a gift to me to be able to spend three hours a week with these students. And at the conclusion of 14 weeks, they literally are different people. And they're then poised to enter the next phase of their education with a much more open mind. And that's what design should be. It's not about kerning at that age. It shouldn't be, I think. I think it's about having an open mind and an open heart.
0: Is there a grade? They get a grade was the mechanisms to uh,
2: I would answer that in two ways. First, I say to them, if you're the kind of person who cares what your grade is, then the door is over there. Because the ones who are what I call tricks for biscuits kids, the ones who spent their whole lives getting into wanting to get into Yale, yeah. like, I don't want them. That They should go take, you know, oh. a, a, they should go take, I yeah, don't know, I Intro to Psychology or something. <laughs> tricks like, for biscuits. The, the point is to just not be that. And then... You know, they half of it they get for showing up, and half of it they get for just being willing to do these crazy exercises I ask them to do, which they is they're making me, films. Yeah, they're, yeah. they're you know, I had a student make a film using a three dollar fan from the Salvation Army. Like that was mm-hmm. the kinetic move. It was the most <laughs> unbelievable thing, and he was an environmental science major. He was on the track team. Like unbelievably great. Got it. Not because he was reading I and knew exactly what to say to me, the design professor. Right. It was because he was willing to say, oh maybe if I move something, I can make a film and maybe the film is a rendition of a color that's different and it's about the atmosphere and it's about... He's a science guy. And I'm not a science person. I'm not equipped to teach science. But I'm equipped, I think, because I'm old enough and I've been through the ringer through design school I got to the point where I thought teaching design is not about form yet at that level because my own education was very, was so steeped in form at such an early point that I f- found it really stultifying. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that there's plenty of time to hone your skill and your craft. But I think having an open mind for ideas other than what you saw on your Facebook feed five minutes ago, that's what these kids need. So if I
1: wanted to create a conversation with a group of people about Blue over time, uh, like most people won't get to go to Yale. But that sort of thinking is amazing, and it is life-changing if you just go deep on a thing.
2: You stand still and dig deeper, which my yeah, friend yeah. my friend Andrew Howard, who I teach with in Portugal every summer, he said, that's the point. Your point is you find a thing, and you don't walk away from it. You just stay there and keep going.
1: Do you think that blue would travel, or is it that it's you and blue?
2: Oh, it totally travels. I teach workshops all over the world based on this class. But you have
3: to be there? You have to be there as the—, no. As the someone else No, absolutely on. not. Yeah. No,
2: and I think I think the more I teach, and the more I write books, and the more I think about the kind of practice I want, the more I think the whole point is for us to see to these ideas in the minds and in the work and the studios of other people.
1: See, this just sounds—I don't know—I don't see—I don't know to you where you're at right now. To me, I think this. Like I'm looking at you. I'm like, mm, I can see you being a little suspicious about blue. I'm ready to do this now. Like I'm ready to be like, to hell with the company. I'm gonna go get. <laughs> I'll right, go down to like. Wait a second. Hold I'm, on. Let's, there, let's hold talk on. about this after the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> no, but like, let's <laughs> just go to Dick Blick and just like get some pens, get some paints, and just like have a minute. You know. Also, I have I have um, four year old twins. So oh. yeah. So I mean, it's but I mean, I have nothing clean. Everything is just falling apart. And I and we're, we I started this company with when they were three. And so. um it's been intense it's you know. been intense and I'm just thinking like God you know what would it be like to be able to think like that and the, the funny thing is is it's not the subject
2: yeah, it really that, isn't it's, it,
1: it's it's I can see everyone like it's a little whole earth catalog that to, to, you know to be like oh it's blue but I'm just like that sounds fine but
2: okay so I'm gonna throw something to Michael at Yale uh, for many years I was on the admissions committee I know Michael uh, still does interviews for applicants and We always are impressed by the student who has self-initiated work. And I would say that more often than not, the thing that makes the cut for the student, obviously talent and presence of mind and personality and other things matter and grades. I mean, there's a lot to get into graduate school. But when a student exhibits the initiative to make their own work and they don't come in and just say, we did this, we did this, we did this, because in fact, you're on a team. But what did you do? It shows that they have made the time and privileged that incentive to make work in a way that shows us that there's a potential for a stamina that tends to really work out very well in the program. I mention this because it is really hard Mm -hmm. to carve out that time. And Michael, a few years ago, came up with this great idea for a project that is now being replicated all over the world that in some ways cuts through this. And you should talk about it.
3: Yeah, it was Jessica said we both teach at the... Yale School of Art, and Jessica's really a good teacher. I'm in awe. even listened to her describe that seminar on blue. I consider myself a pretty bad teacher, and other people share <laughs> that opinion, I think. No, no I, I, I teach, too. I'm terrible. <laughs> and, and like, I, like, I just, it takes a kind of Attention span, and I and I also think it takes a kind of like uh, believability, confidence in the improvability of human nature that uh, that mm-hmm. I'm not sure I possess at all. It's kind of an <laughs> yeah. act of love, and yeah. I just uh, like <laughs> you just, yeah, just you have I, twins. You're spent. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, yeah, <laughs> yeah thank you for you giving. Gave, me you, gave that you gave it home. I will home. be reusing that yeah. justification. That's yeah. great. Till they're in college, but at one, so I used to I used to teach like for weeks on end, and now I just teach this uh, two one day workshops in the school of art and. A number of years ago, I was working on scheduling what these two uh, miraculous days would be. Uh, and for years, and, and I, I'm good at teaching one-day worships. I can do that. Just kind of come in, give an assignment in the morning, and I would say the only rule is it has to be done by 5. If you've got a great idea and you can't finish it by 5, you, you fail. If you got a crummy idea is done by five, you'll pass. You know, I mean, so bake that into got it. Get it done. Yeah. yeah, so I did that a few years in a row, and it was fun. And then I got these two dates, and I had this weird kind of intuition about them. And I counted up the days between them, and they added up exactly to 100 days. So I came in the first day, and I said, okay, here's the assignment. Just pick something and do it over and over again for 100 days. And on the last day, we'll all come in, and we'll show each other what we did. And... Didn't even come anywhere near filling one side of one piece of eight and a half by eleven paper. People were kind of baffled by it. Like, does it have to be designed? I said, I said, I don't know. It can be. It should be something you can document. So it can't be you're just gonna, you know, think of a song in your head while you're brushing your teeth. Right. I do that anyway, so it'd be easy. But, uh, but it needs to be something that you could actually document. And one of the reasons I was interested in this is I'd gotten to this point where just like Jessica was saying, I think actually. Making things takes a kind of discipline, and there's this quote from uh, Chuck Close, which goes, uh, inspiration is for amateurs. The rest of us just show up and get to work. Mm -hmm. When I read that, I sort of thought, you know, I've been doing it wrong. I keep waiting to be inspired, and instead, you have to have a way of doing work, even if you're not in the mood, even if you can't. And I just sort of thought, okay... You know, if you just do it over and over for a hundred days and something happens. And what's interesting is that people it sounds like boring to people, but it doesn't necessarily sound hard. But it ends up being really hard. And what ends up being really hard about it is around day twelve when you start to get really sick and tired <laughs> of whatever thing, no matter how <laughs> trivial <laughs> you decided to do. Mm-hmm. And, and then, then is it
2: like an aerobic state where like at a certain point it becomes a meditation and you yeah, you'll be yeah, yeah, bereft yeah. if you don't do it.
3: Yeah, and then and then what what people have to do, I think part of the trick is you sort of have to get through those parts where you really feel you're losing the thread. Or even I've had people in the middle of it just sort of like change up the rules. And that's really interesting because I don't say, you know, like even if you pick the thing, you're picking the thing. And you you can, you can like cheat your own definition of it if you want mm-hmm. um, as long as you do it every day. And people have done amazing things. What's funny is that it's such a simple what idea.
1: Were, what were some of the things they did?
3: One guy – uh, see, there's just a few of the ones I remember off the top of my head. Uh, one student decided that every day he would put on the song, Here Come the Warm Jets by Brian Eno, mm-hmm. and do a piece of artwork inspired by that song that had to be, and the artwork had to be completed at the same time before the song ended. Okay. Okay. And so he, concrete. and it was just called 100 Warm Jets, bang, that was it. Um, another, a woman decided to uh, introduce herself to a stranger and take her picture with that stranger every day. And this was a little bit before the age of selfies, actually, mm-hmm, where that mm-hmm. sort of seems like, oh, don't people do that all the time, you know? But this sort of like seemed like an insane idea to me. I, like I think she was doing it with like a thirty-five millimeter camera mm-hmm. or something, you know.
2: There was somebody who, uh, one of uh, our students, uh, Rachel Berger, who's now in California, did this great project. She was my student that year. She went to the hardware store, and of course, this is a big destination for the blue class, and got color samples with really stupid names. Got hundred paint chips. She got hundred paint chips, and she put them in a paper bag, and every day. She pulled one out and wrote a short story about one of the colors, yeah. and so much of the story was informed by the title of the color, sure. which became a huge project that I do with my students now. But that's great. but you know, so they're determining the coordinates that frame their understanding of what that thing is going to be, mm-hmm. and that's the project. That's that's what design is, right? It's an editorial conceit in that sense.
3: And and, and so what's interesting about it is that it's just like it's just like you could have this vague desire, or I'm going to be creative or make something. But that's somehow – I mean, at least I sort of – I think I have a lot of barely submerged or perhaps not even submerged neuroses that actually motivate me. And one of them has – I'm very into habituation. There's some things that I do just because – Like I'm afraid the world will end if I don't do the same thing every day. I run three miles every morning Mm -hmm. whether I want to or not just because if I stop then maybe I'll never do it again. There's stuff that I do that's like that, which I think deserves examination and treatment perhaps in a a (laughs) forum other than a podcast. But um, what's interesting is the magic number 100 and kind of this combination of specificity, 100 days, and the open-endedness of the thing you have to do is really tantalizing to people. And people drop out. They can't get past 30. Or they, you know, I'm talking to them on day 50 and they say, oh, I have to confess I haven't done anything since day 17. And, like, like, I'm like... You know, you're lost, buddy. That's like, you know, but the people that finish, it's like so cool. And so what's interesting about it is that I did a post on Design Observer about it. Where I just showed some, I just reprinted this the syllabus such as it is. And then I showed like, you know, a handful of my favorite projects that fell in this category. And then people started like doing it all over the world. You know, I mean, like literally a mm-hmm. woman in New Zealand did it, you know, and like all of a sudden it became this kind of self-administered therapy that some some people who do it take it way more seriously than I would advocate in my class. I'm sort of like too laissez faire about it. Some people are sort of like really serious and rigorous about it. And I'm like, you know, but that's what's great about it. People can kind of morph and take right. it different well, ways. So
1: you know there's another there's a another Chuck Close anecdote that I love, which is someone called his work boring and he just said, What do you think it's like for me? <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's just like that to me. I I, I might think of that every single day, yeah. every day, because I'm just like, yeah, oh yeah. I also I see talent as actually um, often as a react like. A negative reaction to to issues of form right mm-hmm. like it's it's a negative stimulus, and we talk about it as this very positive, wonderful thing, like look at this talented person, and then when you when you get to know them they 're highly anxious about those irregularities yeah. and they need to fix them, so over those hundred days as you're telling me that story i 'm like okay they 're creating the form and then allowing themselves to be annoyed by it
3: yeah yeah, exactly right, exactly right and and it's just funny it's just as um creating things, making things is real work. And, you know, after I got into teaching this thing, I started finding examples and quotes and things. You know, and one of my favorites is the writer John Cheever, who... Uh when he was a writer, he moved eventually up to Westchester, but when he was living in Manhattan, the only way he could write was he would get up every day. He lived in an apartment in the Upper East Side. He would get up every morning, put on a jacket and tie and a hat, and I picture him with a briefcase, kiss his wife goodbye, get on the elevator, take it all the way down to the cellar of the apartment building where the super allowed him to have a desk. He would take <laughs> off, he'd hang up his hat, <laughs> take off his jacket, put it over the chair, sit down at this desk and start writing stories that ended up being in The New Yorker and the collected short stories of John Sheever. Sometimes it would get so hot down there, he would take off all his clothes and sit typing in his underwear. Then at five o'clock he would put his pants back on, his shirt back on, his tie back on, his jacket back on his hat back home. on. Honey, I'm home. You know, <laughs> can you imagine? But like, you know, all of us have rituals that help us actually prepare for The work we have to do and it's true for coders it's true for musicians it's true for designers and I think for a lot of them it's like God help you if like if you need three cans of Red Bull, if you need that one song playing if you know if the desk has to be perfectly clear or you know I mean you really need you get addicted to those things because they're the things that kind of liberate you to go to do the work.
1: These are stories about identity too right like his identity had to be right and it's I feel that very especially in in technology there's a enormous set of questions about diversity inclusion and, and identity yeah. and it's it's endless and tricky and constantly changing and uh and it's just sort of one of the big struggles, because I, I see people go for the identity rather than the work, and but actually the two are conjoined. Like You're yeah. in a culture, and you want to participate in that culture, and you. the Internet's changed that, too. You go yeah. and you kind of read guides as to how to look and behave. And, yeah. and I
2: think the tricky thing is that you know we live in an age of best practices, mm-hmm. and so young people coming of age as designers are trying to figure out how to insinuate themselves into a world that so privileges what's team-based and what's transparent and what's democratic that before you've even forged your own identity, you're part of a pack. Yeah, Yeah, that's very true. A a
3: pack that actually is demanding a kind of conformity to something. And I think the, the biggest mistake people make is sort of getting infatuated with the idea of joining this tribe and kind of getting clad in the trappings of that group and not understanding that that being a poet doesn't have anything to do with how you look in the author photograph on the back cover. It has to do with this this requirement that comes from deep within that you have to write poetry, you know. And there, this, you know.
1: this is a fundamental tension. I mean, I'm, I'm talking to two people who teach at Yale and one who is a lead at Pentagram. Right? Like these are two of the great tribal identities in our world in your field. Like Yale Design is extraordinary, and it, it's the the feeder school for all the academic leaders in New York City. And but I'll
2: tell you something. I, I had an experience <laughs> recently that really changed my perspective on this. And it, and it really comes back to what you're saying about identity and about sort of, in a sense, personhood. So there was a man who was the dean of the School of Art when I was a grad student. He happened to be the happens to be the father of a friend of mine. I grew up across the street from him as a very small child. He's now 84. He's a painter. He's retired from Yale. He was dean for many years. And he hasn't shown his work in a long time, like 40 years a long time. <laughs> like if you Google him, you won't find anything. Mm-hmm. But this man goes to his studio every day and makes work. And he's having a very small show and asked me to write something for the catalog. And I said to him, David, listen, you have to understand something. I only write about people who are dead so they can't disagree with me. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually true. I, it sounds funny, but it's true. I, I'm very thin-skinned as a critic. I said, but if I was ever going to make an exception, this is the time. And so what ensued, this was last spring, I, I made about a half a dozen studio visits to his studio. And he, you know, it's in the basement of his house on a cul-de-sac in a rural bedroom community of New Haven. And then I went off to write this essay, and the privilege was so huge for me to see someone who's a generation ahead of me, as I try to figure out the next chapter of my life as a maker. Right? So I'm a teacher, I'm a writer, I'm a designer, I have a studio, I'm a mother. I mean, we all have these like different identities that we have to bridge. But there is something about seeing this person who has this incredible discipline and love of what he does, that he goes to the studio every day, and I just it, it, I, I didn't realize when I set out to do this what an incredible journey this was going to be for me. And I mention this because it, I think it's very on topic based on what we're talking about right now, but also because he said something really great to me one day. And it was that I said, David, you know, I have a painting studio. The book that just came out has paintings in it. I, mm-hmm. I feel kind of betwixt in between, between painting and design. I don't have a practice with employees anymore. Should I be having a different kind of art practice? And I was just really flummoxed about the entire identity, personhood of, of me. And he said to me, two things he's first he, first of all he said people like us are going to make stuff like that's what we do we make stuff and then he said to me and i thought this was such a great line he said to me the thing is jessica it's not what you have to do it's also what you get to do Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and I realized that he saw that studio as this kind of seedbed of opportunity for, and, and a lot of what he does, like from one week to the next, is he'll just move things around on the wall, and it'll become a whole new juxtaposition of a set of situations that become fodder for a conversation or a drawing or a painting, and I thought there was just, for me, there's just something great about that, totally devoid from technology, right? This is just about idea, mind, form, making, process, sketchbook, understanding you know from one day to the next 100 days another 100 days building a body of work over time
1: wow good stuff there is a lot going on with those two people
0: there is all right hold
1: on just let's stop there for a sec yep we'll come back next week with more there's a lot more to cover yeah that was that this is good stuff um all right look rich this is post official podcast track changes yep, yep. and uh, if you want to get in touch with us contact at post-light. postlight.com mm-hmm. subscribe on on iTunes, all the regular stuff. You know what's up.
0: By the way, five stars across the board. Let's keep that rolling. It's good stuff. We That's appreciate awesome. the feedback, the good feedback, the critical feedback, yes. all the feedback. We Talk really to like the us.
1: feedback. We'll come back next week with with more from Jessica and, and Michael. Have a great week, Paul. All right, Rich, let's get back to work.